0: You know, I'm really excited about this program. I've been looking forward to it for a lot of time. And I started reviewing some uh, DVDs by David Barton on our godly heritage. And the more I watched, the more I realized that I had been duped the same as everybody else. And so we have contacted David Barton. And we are going to have a special set of programs where we interview David Barton with Wall Builders Ministries, and I tell you, this is going to be a life-changing experience for you. I don't care if you're in the U.S. or in some other country. I believe that this is going to be powerful. Truth is power, and it's going to make a difference. So, David, let me welcome you and thank you hey, for coming Andrew. and being on Couldn't our be with program. You, bro.
1: My pleasure.
0: Well, I tell you, I'm excited, David. I, I believe that this it has the potential of really changing some people's lives. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I want to do, the very first thing, is that we've got more, pe- more viewers outside of the U.S. than we do in the mm-hmm. U.S. And so I'd like to just set this up about why is discussing the American heritage, the Constitution, and all of these kind of things important to people outside of our U.S. audience?
1: There's really a couple of reasons. Uh, if you look at where America is today, it's just a matter of fact that we have 4% of the world's population, we have 6% of the world's land mass, But we have 24% of the world's economy. We are by far the most prosperous nation in the world. Um, The poverty rate in the rest of the world is measured at $1 a day as poverty. In America, it's $22 a day as our poverty rate. So we're quite different from other nations. Uh, Back in 1831, a Frenchman said it's called American exceptionalism. America is an exceptional nation. It's not a reason to be proud. There is a reason for everything that happens, and if America has prospered, and we've also been blessed with a longevity, um, this year we will celebrate 233 years under the same piece of paper. And there's 192 nations at the United Nations this year, and we're the only nation out of the 192 that do not average a revolution every 20 to 30 years. We had one revolution 233 years ago. We haven't had another revolution since we're the only nation in the world with that record so when you look at that you say "Oh, those proud cocky Americans now there are reasons and this is where it's so important to go back and study the reasons uh, quite frankly they're biblical reasons the the document that and this is where it's so fun because God's no respecter of persons and he is no respecter of nations I guarantee you any nation that takes the biblical principles that God sets forth for nations And applies those nations, if they apply them to their economy, if they apply them to their educational system, if they'll apply them to their culture, if they'll apply them to their government, their form of government, their type of... If they'll do all the biblical things, God will prosper them and bless them just as He will anybody else. So, America's not special, but it is that America has used some ideas that other nations have rejected. And as you take those ideas and go back, you find out they're biblical... This this book goes back to 1690... Uh, This book was written in England in 1690, and it's called The Two Treatises of Government by John Locke. And John Locke was a theologian. This book has been translated into virtually every language in the world. It just happens that America really latched on to this book. Uh, This book became the basis of our Declaration of Independence when we first were, were born. But this book gives over 1,500 Bible verses to show the proper operation of civil government.
0: Now, is John Locke a minister?
1: John Locke was, he was not a minister. He was trained for ministry and then went into law. So, he became a theologian. He actually has a uh, verse-by-verse commentary on the Bible that he did. So, here's an attorney in civil arena, uh, a judge and other things, that has such a complete understanding of the Bible that he actually did a verse-by-verse commentary in the Bible. But because he did that, he also said, by the way, the Bible applies to this aspect of life and government and judiciary and executive powers. And, and this is one of the problems that the Christian world has gotten into in the last 50 years. It's across the world. We've been taught to compartmentalize our faith. You know, we've got God that goes over here and the Bible goes over here and here's where church is. But ooh, we don't get in that secular stuff like government and science and law and education and media and politics. The Bible doesn't make that compartmentalization. I mean, God is into everything. Uh, We're told in Psalms 24 that the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. It's all his. And so when we used to believe that. We would say, well, what does the Bible say about government? And that's where John Locke says, well, here's 1,500 verses out of the Bible that talk Mm -hmm. about government. And today we say, well, Christians shouldn't be involved in government. Well, God is. I mean, quite frankly, God's the one who ordains civil government. So that's why even looking at America and American history... Can actually be beneficial for other nations, not because America is worth anything, but because there are principles there that were used. That if they're applied in other nations, God will bless any nation the same ways He's blessed America.
0: And you know, I see America. I'm I'm an American, and I'm proud of it. But you know what? I, I'm proud of it because of the godly heritage. It's yeah. actually my pride rests in the Lord and in the fact that we had a godly foundation. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's what we're talking about. We aren't trying to promote America. No. What we're promoting is our godly heritage and the influence that the Lord and the Bible has had on our country.
1: And, and that does make a significant difference. I mean, when, when we came out with our Declaration of Independence um, in 1776, we had used this book, had studied this book. And in that declaration, it contains so much of the philosophy out of the Bible right in that. And it is it is interesting that America at that time was a British colony, and uh, we're very blessed. We have about 100,000 documents from before 1812, so I have thousands of, of these early documents. And a, a document I really enjoy is a 1776 newspaper from London, and it was the first time that London had seen the Declaration of Independence. And from an American standpoint, you would think that, well, if anybody's going to understand our thinking, it's going to be our British cousins because, you know, we're, we're all British citizens at that point. And so we start off with the declaration where we talk about that there is a creator God and the creator God has made all men to be equal. And right there, the British newspaper said, how ridiculous is that? We know that God didn't make men equal. You have different classes of men, different races of men, and races aren't equal and classes aren't equal. You have nobles, you have commoners, you have poor. God didn't make all men equal. And then we go on to say, and God is in doubt, not not only did God make men equal, but he gave every one of them certain guaranteed inalienable rights. And the British newspaper said, now that is really stupid. We know that government is what gives rights to men, not God, that is the king. Who and, and so this philosophy that we had in the Declaration of Independence was so radical that even those closest to us scorned that philosophy. But when you go back, there there are four basic principles that we said. We said, all right, there is a creator God. The creator God created man and he created all men equal. He gave his son to die for each and every man. He didn't give it to die just for some. And therefore, that's where we got early on in the civil rights movement because we looked at what Paul said that all we're all of one blood. Uh, we looked in Revelation where the, at the last day gathered around his throne are all tribes, all nations, mm-hmm. all people, all languages. We said Christ died for all. We're all brothers. So we're made equal. And then with that, God gave us certain specific rights that don't come from government. They come from him. And and here's where it really got radical. We said the purpose of government is to protect the rights that God gave you. Government doesn't exist for any other reason except to protect what God gave you. And then past that, you have the right of the consent of the governed. You, the people, get to choose what policies you want to live under if it's something God hasn't talked about. And that was our philosophy on which we built the nation and that's why we have been a different nation, and that's why it works for any nation that tries it.
0: So a lot of people talk about this as a democracy or a republic or whatever, and they talk about it in secular terms. But really, this is an expression of faith in God is yeah. what produced this form of government. It is, it, the government isn't separated from Christianity at all.
1: No, it is not separated from Christianity. It is certainly not separated from biblical precepts. Because as you go back into Genesis, and Genesis is called the seed plot of the Bible, there's not a doctrine in Christianity that does not have its roots in the book of Genesis. And as you get into Genesis, you find that in the first three chapters, um, God ordained, uh, or, ordained the family. He set up the family, established the family. By the time you get over to Genesis chapter 9, God has ordained civil government. That is His institution. And by the time you get over to about Genesis 30, 32, he's ordained what we would call the church, the vertical relationship. So three institutions he ordained. He ordained government before he ordained the church, but the family was the basis of all. And if you're going to find how the family should work or how government should work or how the church should work, Genesis has got the the start of it all. And so he lays out the first civil laws in the book of Genesis, the way we conduct our relationship with each other. He expanded on that in the Pentateuch throughout uh, Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. He he gives great expansion, but it all goes back to Genesis. And so when you look at America and and Christianity, um, those two things have been intrinsic from the very, very beginning. As a matter of fact, it's really funny that preachers had more to do with America becoming the nation she was than any other group because at the time America was being founded over 400 years ago, the people who came here by and large were fleeing persecution Mm -hmm. other parts of the world. And they brought, well they actually brought specifically this Bible with them. This Bible is 419 years old. It's called a Geneva Bible. And this particular Bible had been printed in 1560 in Europe. And it became the Bible of everybody who was trying to get back to the Word of God. We'd gone through 1200 years of the Dark Ages Where the the Bible wasn't to be read. It was in a language that people didn't understand. You certainly could not take one with you. Uh, This is the first Bible that was printed that you could actually carry with you as a citizen, as an individual. And this was going all over Europe, and people were saying, hey, that's not what we're doing. We need to do what this says. And so, this became a challenge to a lot of traditions that were going on of both church and state, and people who didn't like their traditions being challenged persecuted people trying to do the right thing. So, they come to America. Well, they had no more got off the ships in America. The, the first government document written here said, you know, we got kings in Europe, but we're told in Exodus 18.21 that we should be choosing and electing our own leaders. And based on that, we're going to do that. And the pastor of that group, John Robinson, he said, remember what God said about choosing your own leaders and remember to choose common men from out among you. Don't choose nobles and high nobility because Exodus 18.21 says, choose out from among you. So choose common people. That was a radical notion anywhere in Europe at that time. We had kings everywhere, and now we're electing common people to be rulers and leaders. That's the basis of America and our form of government. But that came from pastors who were preaching the Word of God who said, look what God said about government. Uh, we, we had the same thing when we started saying, you know, we've got, we got judges, but we need to be careful about not letting those judges together because Isaiah 33, 22 tells us to separate the three branches of government. Well, if you're in Europe, the king was over the courts and the king was over the parliament. There was no separation of the branches. We came to America and said, no, Isaiah 33, 22 says we need to separate the branches. And by the way, we need a way to counterbalance the branches. And that's where they used Jeremiah 17:9 9 for separation of powers. I mean, all these things that we think are secular terms, you know, branches and separation, they all come out of the Bible.
0: Wow. You know, there was uh, one of your series that I was watching and you know, you've got... How many uh, DVD sets do you have out? Oh, gracious, Andrew. Uh, I've, I've seen it's 10 a of them. And yeah. I think that that's a very small portion. It, it, it's a bunch. But anyway, and I forget where all this was, but you showed the number of quotations mm-hmm. made in the founding documents mm-hmm. to all of these different things. And by far, in a way, the Bible was cited yeah. more than any other source. And I think John Locke's uh on government and stuff, and quotations from the Bible.
1: Yeah. There. In the American founding, we cited, the, in the political building of America, we cited the Bible 12 times more often than we cited John Locke. And John Locke was our favorite. You know, we loved this guy. But we cited the Bible 12 times more often. And if you'll go through the Constitution, it is so striking that when you look at, for example, what we call the Uniform uh, Immigration Clause of the Constitution, You can go back to Leviticus 19 and find that clause. Uh, You look in Article Two of our Constitution, what we say is the requirements for a president. Those came right out of the book of Exodus. Uh, We have in in Article Three of the Constitution what we call a prohibition on bills of attainder. Man, that came right out of Ezekiel, just verse by verse out of Ezekiel. Nobody knows what an attainder is today, but it was a biblical term and we forbid it in the Constitution. But every European country had attainder at that time. But we said, not here, because Ezekiel says now, you don't do that. What is attainder? says that if you commit a crime, the, the, the king, the country, will punish your family forever. Your, your family will be paupers the rest of the time, they'll take all your land away. The Bible says, no, the soul that sins, yeah. it dies. You don't pass on the sin to the children of the father. The father of the children stops So a bill of attainder says you cannot punish a family for what an individual did. And that was a radical notion. You know, I've notion. seen
0: that in the Bible, but I have never translated it into government and thought that that's how government arrived at those conclusions. So, when the United States uh, came and started implementing these things, that was exceptional. Oh, it in the was. The world it, it wasn't was, being done. That it was way.
1: not being done. They went against tradition of, of the world, and that's because literally the people who came to America. We have the early records of those people, Pilgrims and others. They would spend from two to six hours a day in the Bible. And they didn't do it like a devotional reading book. Uh, I mean, quite frankly, what is now called the free enterprise system, or what is sometimes called ethical capitalism, it came right out of 1 Timothy 5.8. It came right out of 2 mm-hmm. Thessalonians 3.10. That was not being done in the world at the time. It had been done previously in biblical times. The world had gotten away from it. And they looked at that, and they said, now, wait a minute. And by the way, America originally started with a socialistic form of government. Yeah, we did I'm, that in both colonies. Yeah. And, and, and they said, wait a minute, the Bible says... It didn't work. It did not. Not only does it not work, the Bible says it's wrong. Mm-hmm. Now, if I pose that thought to most Christians today and say, show me in the Bible where the socialism is wrong, they go, the Bible doesn't talk about stuff like that. Yeah, it does. And, and that, the cool part is those who came to America would spend hours a day in the Bible And from that, they developed so many things that were unique to America at the time. But again, it's not limited to America. Any nation that'll take those Bible verses and use it, and we've got a lot of emerging nations right now. I mean, while we're taping this, there are 19 nations that are engaged either in civil war or revolution. So that gives 19 nations a chance to have a fresh start. And if they they want to, they go right back to Locke's treatises on government, right back to the biblical basis, say, hey, we're going to do it the biblical way from the start. And they'll be enduring nations. You know, they may be in a revolution now, but they'll be stable in 20 years from now.
0: Well, you know, I've heard you make these statements on your DVDs about these things and about how they came straight out of the Bible. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I've, I, I mean, I study the Word all of the time, and I have groped to think of what Scripture it is that you're referring to. Yeah. But now that you mention 1 Timothy chapter 5, of course, that's where it talks about taking care of the widows and providing yeah. for your own and stuff. But I've never applied that in yeah, a sense. It was government. really
1: good because and if, you, if you think about the pilgrims, they came together. They came to America as a congregation. They were a congregation from, from Europe that came here. And they loved one another and looked out for one another and cared for one another. And that's the way it should be. I mean, we're told in Galatians, you, you look out for all men, but especially those of the household of faith. And, and so they were doing the right thing. And they had common insurance. They said, we'll help each other. If something happens to you, we'll take it, which is the right thing to do. But then what they did was because they were in a very rugged wilderness and having a really tough time living in this, this wild country of America, they said, what we'll do is we'll put all all the things that we make and produce, we'll put together in common, we'll all share it equally. You know, fair thing to do. They well, nearly starved. That's right. They nearly starved <laughs> because some of the able-bodied guys said, oh, I don't have to work that's as right. hard and I'm going to get my share out of this whether I do anything or not. And that's when they found that verse that says, Whoever does not provide for his own family is worse than an infidel, and they said we're providing for everybody else's families. What we're taking is being given and shared with everybody, not for our own family. So they had a town meeting, got together, they read out of Psalms, and Psalms talked about He divided the land, and so they said, "All right, here's the property you can have." And it said that He set the solitary in the family, so they took the widows and the orphans. And said, "All right, we're attaching you to this family." And they'll provide for you, and you have to provide for yourself. And suddenly their productivity went through the yeah. roof. The, now,
0: I've been to the Plymouth Colony, yeah. and I've studied some of that, and I've seen that, that they tried the first winter. They tried socialism. And they just barely made it. And when they went into giving incentives for people working on their own, their productivity increased, and that's when they finally got their foothold.
1: You know, we, we have here in America what we call the capital gains tax. And it's a tax where that the more profit you make, the more we tax mm-hmm. you. Well, the problem is, if you go back to Luke 19 and Matthew 25, on the parable of the talents, the one that made that's the right. most, he took away from the non-productive, gave it to the one that made the most.
0: Wow, that's tremendous.
1: And they said, wait a minute, that's not fair. He's already got 10. And they said, no, no, to him who has will be given. To him, to him who has not will be taken away even that which he has. And the biblical thing is God rewards productivity. The The one that didn't even invest that talent to make interest on it, he got really ticked at him. But the one who made ten is the one who got reward. So we had set it up where that if you work hard, if you're productive, we're not gonna punish you for making profit and making money. We'll punish the non productive people. And now we reversed it and says, well, if you're not productive,
0: we'll take care of you. And if you're too productive, we'll we'll punish you. You know, this this is encouraging to me because again, I study the word all of the time. But David, I hadn't made some of these connections. I've never taken that parable. I've always applied it to me in my personal yeah. relationship with God. And well see, my that, that's a great
1: reason to say the capital gains tax is a violation of biblical precepts because it punishes you for
0: making profit. And it rewards those who don't make And profit. therefore, people who believe in God and believe in the Word ought to take a stand uh, they ought on to take a stand. secular, what we call secular things, because right. it's a violation of the principles of God.
1: Anything the Bible talks about should not be considered secular by us.
0: You know, I do not think that most Christians would look at taking a stand against capital gains tax as being a a godly stance. That's a political area and that's an area that Christians really shouldn't venture into is kind of the way that people look.
1: And yet the Bible has two complete parables on the capital gains tax. So why are we silent on something the Bible talks about? I'm guilty. We all are.
0: You know, and one of the things, we have our uh, English director and Bible college director and other people come over, and people from Canada came Mm -hmm. down to our conference last July the 4th, and we always sing patriotic songs. Mm -hmm. I'm proud to be an American. We sing about God bless America uh, and all of these things. And And the people from other countries are amazed at our patriotism and they say that we don't have this in our country. And, you know, just in talking to you briefly, I can see that it's because our country is really rooted in God. You know, this is a little off subject, but I think it's good to help the audience understand this. Where did you gain your knowledge of this? Were you taught this in school or are you self No, I didn't
1: get any of this in school. I went through a, a system of, of education that had been very secularized by the time I went through. And, and the time I went through, we'd really kind of cut God out of everything. We'd gotten into separation church and state where you put God in a box and tell him don't get out of your box. You know, here, here's real life out here, but you stay in your box. And Christians buy into that. Let's put God in a box and let's keep Him from affecting anything else. And that's the way I I had gone through the culture and and society. So this was not taught, but very providentially, um, I ended up coming across a really old document. I read that old document and I go, I see what I'm reading, but that wasn't what I was taught about that document. And so now I've got a choice, Do do I believe the original or do I believe what I was told about the original, which clearly was wrong? And that got me into collecting originals, and so using those originals. And, and there's there's a Bible verse I really love out of Acts seventeen eleven, where you've got the Apostle Paul, and I mean he's proven to be an apostle in many ways by, by his ministry, by his works, by all, all the things that he did, by what he endured. He he gives a list of all the things, but he said that all of his travels, the people he liked the best were the Bereans because they wouldn't believe him. He said that he would tell them the gospel, and they say, "Ah, you're just an apostle. Can't trust you." Said they searched the scriptures every day to see if he was mm-hmm. telling the truth, and we go through series of educational learnings in our countries where we're not taught to search the truth. We're not taught to question our teachers. We're not taught to question our textbooks. Uh, if we're told it, that's what you're supposed to believe. You're going to be tested on it. You need to learn it and spit it back out. And uh, what I found was what I was taught was not accurate. And so that's where we started collecting those documents. And over the last twenty years, we've amassed a. We've been really blessed to have a, a good sized library but it's been a real re-education for me. So basically
0: you've just gone back to some of the original Mm -hmm. documents and from that you've come up with this information that you share and all this. And
1: I find out now that it's what we used to teach in our textbooks 60, 70, 80 years ago because I also have a huge collection of textbooks. So this was common knowledge for 300 years, but in the last 60, 70 years we've really secularized our education and our thinking and compartmentalized our faith. And it's an interesting thing the way this works because Luke 640 says that every student when he's fully trained will be like his teacher. So we have a tendency to become like those who taught us, whether it's our textbooks or our teachers or whatever. And it takes a real act of God to break outside that mold. But that's always what generates revival. Uh, If you look in in the story of Josiah, Josiah is doing a really good thing to get the nation back to God. Let's rebuild the temple. And they think they're doing great. And they find that old scroll yeah. in the temple, and they yeah. bring it out, and they say, "We well, used to be like this," going back and seeing their history led to a national revival. And that happens time and time throughout the scriptures. What saved Mordecai's life was the fact that King came up with insomnia. He said, "Bring me something that's to read." Right. He read the history of his own kingdom, where Mordecai had saved his life, and he didn't even remember that, and that's what saved Mordecai's life was history. Uh, you, you have Stephen that kicks off the New Testament church. Not with yep. a great theological treatise or a doctrinal dissertation, but with a history lesson. He said, "Guys, I'm just, look I'm what amazed. God's doing." It.
0: I'm amazed at what you're saying. I'm a student of the Word, and I don't make these applications to our secular world. And again, I believe that that's probably a product of the way that I've been, been brought up. in Christianity. Well, there's mm-hmm. the separation of church and state. Yeah. Well,
1: we're told that so often, and you know, I, I guess the right way to do this is we hear that phrase all the time and it 's something that is across the world and by the way i will I will say too, the significance of history is so profound that I remember something that happened eighteen, twenty years ago here on america 's secular media uh, where that they they concluded that the Soviet Union was about to break apart and that the Soviet Union, the walls were about to come down and the reason they knew was that the Soviet Union was changing the content of its textbooks. They had taken out Lenin and they had taken out Stalin and some of the old stalwarts were disappearing and they said, man, they're going to forget what they're all about and they're not going to be the Soviet Union anymore and sure enough a few years later the walls all come down. But I thought it was significant that they looked at what was going on in the textbooks and said, here's what's about to happen in the nation based on what's going on in the there's, textbooks.
0: There's a lesson in that for us. There's a
1: lesson in that for us because people can have agendas in textbooks, and separation of church and state is one of them. Separation of church and state today means the secularization of the state and keeping the church over here put in a little box. Uh, we really say separation of church. I've been involved in seven cases of the U.S. Supreme Court. They have all dealt with public religious expressions. And what happened in America
0: Now, was, how are you involved? as a, Like a witness because of your well, knowledge of history? and?
1: Yeah, as a case will get to the court, we have a knowledge of certain things, and they will bring us in to help create the arguments and prepare the briefs and write the amicus forms and other... So sometimes it's directly with the attorneys that argue the case. Sometimes it's they want us to provide support arguments to the court... And so we will do that through the, through the history. And quite frankly, all the things we discuss are things that have historical precedent. The Bible says there's nothing new under the sun, mm-hmm. and there's really technology is what's new. But but I find it amazing, for example, just to take some contemporary issues. Um, here in America, we deal with abortion a lot. It's a big issue. It's, it's becoming a global issue. But the founding fathers were dealing with abortion back in 1790s. Uh, their laws dealt with abortion. They go, no, wait a minute. Abortion came about with Roe v. Wade in 1973. No. Technology was different. We have different ways to do abortion now, but as long as there's been pregnancy, there's been people who didn't want to be pregnant, and there's been abortions.
0: But I mean, did the early U.S. government deal with that? It dealt with abortions.
1: Thomas Jefferson actually has revisions to the laws of Virginia that forbid abortions. You can't do abortions. The first law book ever written in America says you cannot do abortions because God is the creator of life, not parents. Parents don't create life, God does. And if you take a life, you're taking what God created. And so in the books it said we do not even allow the parents the choice of whether to put a child to death of abortion or anything else. They said, from the time you know that there is life in the womb, it is protected by the law because it's God given. Now where,
0: you know, this just astounds me because during Roe versus Wade, the Supreme Court was mm -hmm. either ignorant of this or chose to ignore it. What was it?
1: Well, it's it's some of both but they'd gone through an educational system. We didn't. I'll give you another good example. Uh, back about 12, 14 years ago is when America had a, a big our president came in and he said, we need to have homosexuals in the military. We had not had homosexuals in the American military prior to that. And so we have a big policy debate. They have hearings at Congress. C-SPAN, our television network, covers the hearings. And I'm watching the experts from the Pentagon say, well... Congress, we need you to give us guidance on this, because we've never had the issue of homosexuals in the military arise before, and we need to know what what the policy is going to be. And at that time, I got a call from leadership in the U.S. Marine Corps, and they said, you know, with all the old documents you have, do you suppose it's possible the Founding Fathers had a position on homosexuals in the military? And I'd been watching the hearings. I said, no, this has just been something that's come up since World War II, uh, but I'll look just to make sure. Well, it turned out, George Washington created a policy on homosexuals in the military back in 1778. And John Adams dealt with it. And Thomas Jefferson, there's nothing new under the sun. Our technology is different. So what
0: did they do? What they, was their stance? They said,
1: absolutely. It really sounded like a Pentagon report because they said, here's what it does to morale. It's a sin that's committed in secret. And because it's committed in secret, if it's propagated in secret, it spreads. And, and, uh, they what called a, it a sin, though. They called it a sin. And, oh, that's, and
0: that's quite a statement. I, I'd never,
1: I'd never understood. I've heard the term being drummed out of the military, but I never understood what that was until I read Washington's order. When he discovered that there was a homosexual military, he drummed him out of the military, which means he put him in the front of the line, had the drum corps behind him drumming so that everybody would look at him as they were discharging him from the military. Oh man! And so it was a public humiliation. That what went, a statement. They said, "Look, this is wrong. Everybody needs to publicly know this is wrong, and this is not to be part of the military." And so when they drum somebody out, whether it was for cheating or stealing or whatever it was, when you were drummed out, it was literally with drums so that everybody would see it. And you say, that's a reprehensible position. We don't, we don't want to be there. That, that's a sin. That's wrong.
0: Now, David, if people knew that, see, I was totally ignorant of this. If people knew that and had any belief at all that we should adhere to the original intent yeah. and purposes, that would have ended the conflict we see over homosexuality, yeah. the abortion issue. Yeah. You know, at the time we're making these programs, it was just yesterday that President Obama uh, lifted the band on stem cell research, mm-hmm. which does more than just allow the uh, embryos that are, you know, in um, free, frozen someplace that might have been discarded. Yeah. It's actually encouraging the production and cloning of embryos and making of human beings. That's right for the purpose of destruction. And I heard this yesterday too about a baby named Noah that during the hurricane Katrina, some uh, rescuers realized that this sperm bank was going to be overcome Mm -hmm. and they got those sperm and rescued it. And so anyway, these these embryos were uh, 16 months from the time that they were conceived and then they were implanted in a person and born and Noah is now totally healthy baby, So that proves that that little embryo is a human being. A a human human being. being. Mm-hmm. And we have precedent all the way back to the beginning of this country to show that that is against what's being done. And I guess President Obama, yeah. the Congress, either ignores this or is ignorant.
1: Well, it. I, I tell you one of the things that I find very striking because this this is, I was in math and science. That was my background. And uh, what, what I have now found is that science continually validates the bible. It may not initially. Um, for example, the the whole thing on global warming. I had a Jewish rabbi who took me through it, Genesis 1 through 3 and said, "Look, here's what's happening, here's what's going to happen, and here's what science is going to find." Well, for a while it looked like science was saying, "Oh yeah, carbon dioxide's creating the problem, and now we find carbon dioxide is a cooling agent to keep the atmosphere cool, <laughs> cool so that it doesn't warm up." And, and yeah. so now science is catching up with the bible, but this thing of, of stem cell research if if it is wrong to destroy a human embryo, then there's no way you're going, if the Bible is right and it's wrong to destroy a human embryo, then there's no way you're going to get medical benefit out of doing something wrong. And so what, what had surprised me was we've been doing stem cell research for 30 years, embryonic stem cell research, and we have yet to have a single human trial after 30 years of research on human embryos, stem cell research. And it was just a few weeks ago that we had the first human trial. And I thought, have they actually progressed to where they think it's going to do just... And what we've always known is the way you can identify an embryonic stem cell in labs, because they do this in animals and monkeys and rats and mice and whatever. Anytime you inject an embryonic stem cell, it always creates tumors. And that's how we know in labs that you have an embryonic stem. Adult stem cells will cure things, but embryonic won't. And so they were doing, for the first time, just a few weeks ago, adult. uh, they they were using embryonic stem cells on humans. I thought, man, have they progressed enough? And we got the word just about a week ago that, no, the child into which they injected those embryonic stem cells have now developed tumors in the spinal cord and the brain. So again, we have lifted the ban on a form of research that has yet to have a single positive test. And so what we're doing is we're saying we're going to destroy human embryos and clone human embryos to destroy even though for 30 years we've not found a single cure. And by the way on the other side with adult stem cell we now have over 85 cures wow. including the ability to regenerate the heart after heart attack, spinal regeneration after uh, after injuries, uh, Parkinson's disease, several cures for cancer all through adult stem cells which do not destroy living embryos. So uh, science is proving the Bible right again, Mm -hmm. but you get these people out there that are so committed to being secular, and if it's got anything to do – see, France did that when they had their revolution. They were were so secular that they said – we don't want a seven-day work week because people will still think about a Sabbath. So, France enacted by law a ten-day work week back in 1789 to get the people to quit thinking about Sabbath. And that didn't work too well, so they went back to the seven-day. But nonetheless, you, you have mentalities that say, if it's got anything to do with God, we're going the other way. And pure science says that embryonic stem cell does not work. The Bible says it doesn't work, but we continue to want to embrace it, and the President says we're going to do this that's a rejection of of biblical principle. You know, I'll be criticized
0: for saying this, but I really believe that a lot of what we call liberal conservative and all this stuff, it's moral versus immoral. It is. And there are people that are hell-bent on being Mm -hmm. against whatever tradition is said, Mm -hmm. whatever traditional Christianity says, and they are out to... It's a spirit of Antichrist. They wouldn't say that, but they are out against anything that is consistent with the Word of God and like you said, even though stem cells may not, uh, embryonic stem cells may not prove to have been effective, they're going to lift the ban when they, it wasn't even necessary. Mm-hmm. We had other stem cells that we can use.
1: It goes back to the garden in Genesis 1, where man said, I can be like God. I yeah. can have that knowledge. I can make the. You either follow what God told you to do or you set yourself up to be like God. And at that point, that's where you're in rebellion to God. And that's, that's the whole conflict we've seen across mankind uh, across all those years. And that's why it still is just so amazing to me because on science stuff, we've been debating this for the life issue. It goes back to the founding era. Um, Another funny one that's really cute for at least a lot of people is the founding fathers had huge debates on creation and evolution. And people say, wait a minute, time out. It was Darwin who did evolution in 1859. How can guys back in 1750s have it turns out that Darwin only took 2,300 years of evolutionary theory and put it in a single book. Evolution was pretty much determined 500 years before Christ was on Earth.
0: I you mean, know, David, so- we're just barely getting started in this, and already I'm getting angry. <laughs> it's like this isn't fair because I, I didn't know these things. Yeah. I honestly thought that evolution is something as far as you know uh, affecting our society back in the early 1900s when they had the, what was it, the Swopes? Scopes
1: Monkey Trial, trial. 1925,
0: and that that basically is when the tide turned. And yet here you are saying back in the 1700s.
1: Well, you know, one of the most secular founding fathers America has is Thomas Paine. He hated Christianity. Now, he he would call himself a theist. He, He believed in God. He just didn't believe in Jesus. 1789. Thomas Paine, who had worked very hard in France for the overthrow of Louis the Fourteenth, and wanted monarchies gone, he wanted republic, democracies in, in France in 1789. He's a hero there. He he took the French education system to task because they weren't teaching creation science in the public school classrooms. He says when you look at science and you look at the law of gravity, you think of Newton. He said, when you look at a piece of sculpture, you think of Michelangelo. He says, how can you look at science and not think of God? And he goes through this long exposition of how that God is the creator. It did not evolve. He says, science has no original principles. They're all of divine origin. And you go, that's the most secular founding father. And he's standing up for creation science in the classroom and trashing evolution and that's back in 1789.
0: And again, if we had any commitment to the original intent mm-hmm. and the purposes of the founding of our nation, you take those kind of truths into account and it dictates what our interpretation has to yeah, be today. it does.
1: But the sad thing is we don't know our history. We don't know our history. And that is the difficult... And there's, I went through and chronicled in the Bible how many times God says, recall the former days, remember the former times... 1 Corinthians 10, the, the chapter, is, it says, these things are written for your example. And it goes through all these historical examples in Israel. Uh, you get into Romans fifteen four, and it says, pay attention to things that happened before time. I just struck with how much God says, know your history, learn your history, study your history. I mean, He really is into that because He has revealed Himself so many times, so many ways, and every generation thinks that they're new and on cutting edge. You know, They went from horses to trains. They went from trains to planes. And they say, oh, they didn't have that back then. Well, the technology changes, but the issues do not
0: change. And that's amazing. So let me just read a passage out of Psalms 139, where it says in verse 13, Thou hast possessed my reins, thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth. Right well, my substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest part of the earth. Thine eyes did see my substance yet being imperfect, and my and in thy book all my members were written when in continuance were fashioned when as yet there was none of them. And of course you put that together with Elizabeth having John the Baptist leap in yeah, her womb right. for joy, that's express right. emotion when he was only six months into the pregnancy. What this states is that um, a child before it's born is a living human being. In these verses, it comes straight from the Bible. And you're saying that even in the founding of this nation, they were using the Bible and debating these They issue. were
1: using that verse as the basis of life. And in the Declaration, when it says that all men are created equal and God has given them certain inalienable rights, and they said the first of which is the right to life, Sam Adams, the other founding father, said literally that is the right to be born they talked about abortion as we say, oh, right to life. They were just talking about living. No, no, no. They were actually talking abortion things back then at the time of the Declaration when they said the right to life. And they cited Psalms 139 in the law books of the day as proof of why you cannot have an abortion because God created life. It was God That's who somebody. put you in the womb.
0: Well, you know, David, I've believed these things, of course, based on Scripture. But when it comes to arguing it in the public arena, You constantly are told, but you know that is a brand new doctrine. You're departing from tradition when the truth is the people who are promoting abortion are the ones that are ignoring tradition in the founding of this nation. That's right. I just got back not long ago from Amsterdam where they've basically legalized everything and the Christians that I was dealing with there in Amsterdam are talking about the child prostitution and just the terrible falling apart of society. It's not working and Mm -hmm. yet There are people that will emulate that. There's even people here in the United States that will cite that. And so anyway, we've been talking about all of these things. And what I want to, I'm just going to kind of push us in this direction today because yesterday we got sidetracked. But when you start talking about the Bible and about morals and about God and how you're basing your opinion on the Bible, here in the United States and it's really all around the world, people bring up this thing about the difference between the separation Mm -hmm. of church and state and they basically just use that to disarm you and say, hey, we aren't going to get into religion. Yeah. We aren't going to get into that. They're trying to approach everything from a humanistic standpoint. And so, what is this, the the uh, heritage or the history of That's all of that? That's a great
1: question, because you're right. Today, when you hear separation, church, and state, it's the club to beat the Christians back into their little box. You That's know, right. we've got you guys over in this little hole, and we want you to stay in there. And if you come out, we're going to beat you back with this club called separation, church and state. And a lot of Christians buy into that; they they have bought that. Um, there's a great passage in Romans 12, uh, verse two, in King James it says, "Be not conformed to this world; mm-hmm. be transformed by the renewing of your mind." But I love in the Phillips translation. Philip's translation says, Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold. That's right. And in many ways, we've let the secular world tell Christians what their role in the world is to be. Now, you, you can't do that. Separation church, you, you can't do that in schools. You can't do that in government. You can't. And, and so we have let the world define where we can be salt and light and how. And, and so your question on history is, is really good because you have to go back to Genesis, how that God set up three institutions. He set up first the family, then government, and then the church. So, he says those three institutions, and what's significant is as you look at the relationship between the three, they each have different functions. Uh, For example, you'll find that in the Scriptures it's to parents that he says, bring your kids up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. He doesn't tell churches to do that, that's Mm -hmm. the role of parents. Now, if they want to defer that out and let schools do that, that's fine. But parents are still in charge of bringing their kids up and
0: nurturing and admonition of the Lord. Well, I'm have, not sure I'd agree with that, that it's okay to defer that to somebody well, you else. I think that's where we get in trouble.
1: Yeah, and if you defer, especially to a secular philosophy, you, you violated that yes. because you're not bringing them up and nurturing and admonition. If you can defer it to a Christian school or, or parochial school and work with them, the philosophy was called in loco parentis. As long as they'll work in place of the parents, if they work side by side with the parents... You have the schools of the prophets, and you have the various schools, and that's fine, but it's still the parents that are ultimately responsible. And if you lose your kids as a result of the education they receive, it's your fault because you're in charge of their education. It's not the public schools that robbed your kids. It's not the universities. It's you because you're in charge. God, God made that real clear. And in the same way with the church, he tells the church that they've got, here, here's why you exist. You've got the five-fold ministry. You're to train saints for the work of the ministry. It's not the role of government to train saints for the work mm-hmm. of the ministry. It's not the role of, of even family. That's the role of the church. In the same way, government is told that it bears the sword of civil justice. Now, families can bear the sword of self-defense, and that's fine, but the sort of civil justice, of punishing societal crimes, belongs only to civil government. And every time the other institutions pick it up is where you have atrocities. Uh, every atrocity that we look at in what we call the, the Dark Ages was because the church picked up the sword of civil justice. They did something that was not their jurisdiction.
0: Yeah. And that, that's one of the arguments that, often against, against separation Christian, of church and right. state because look what the church did when it at was that in charge. Time.
1: And see, that, that's become significant because when you look at how God dealt with those institutions, when He takes His people Israel out of slavery he gets them in the promised land, and they get their own government, their own culture, their own nation. They are now in their own nation. He says, I've got a priest over here, and I've got a civil ruler over here. Aaron, you're here. Moses, you're here. Moses, you're not doing the temple stuff, and Aaron, you're not doing the civil stuff. So God really did create a separation of the institutions, but He did that back in Genesis. And it's significant that as you get on through the Scriptures into First Chronicles, for example, 26, you have King Uzziah. And Uzziah, what a wonderful king! He loved God. God prospered him. The Bible says his animal husbandry programs were legendary. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bible says he that God created gave engines, engines and, of war.
0: Inventions. And as, I brilliant. read
1: that, and I say it's kind of like Gatling guns for arrows. You know, I read the That's descriptions, right. and you know, he made these long-range catapults, uh-huh. and, and so he revolutionized militaries. God prospered him, and so he says, you know, God's blessed me so much, I'm going to go thank God, which is okay. But he said, I'm going into the temple, and I myself will offer sacrifice. I'll offer incense. And the priest met him at the door and said, no, no, no. God said the priest offered the incense. You don't do it. You're the civil ruler. He said, get out of my way. I'm king. I do what I want to. So he gets ready to offer that incense to God, and God strikes him down right there. God's the one who said, look, I've got an institution of church and an institution of state, and the two are separate. So that's the way it had been. And as you go through Jesus, you find the same thing not that they don't cooperate. I mean, Uzziah's fine for him to acknowledge God. The priests were considered to be the counselors to the king. Uh, Nathan and Gad were, were sure. the, 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 you know, and, and you have Elijah and Elisha. They talked to the. Mm-hmm. We didn't have a secularization of them, but they just had different functions. And so that, that maintained until about 371 A.D. In 371 A.D., we had someone like King Uzziah. We had a civil ruler over the Roman Empire who became a Christian and said, you know what? by a legal decree, you're all going to become Christians or I'm going to put you to death. And so what happens is we now merge church and state. The civil leader became the religious leader. And he started saying what the doctrine will be, and we're going to use the sword to do this. And for the next 1,200 years, it was the state who determined theology, and it was the church who used the sword to put people to death. Wow. Um, and in that period of time, they got into this really wacky notion that said, you know, God is holy. I mean, He's really holy and you're just a common person, you can't approach God directly. Somebody's got to be your intermediary. So no more can we pray directly to God. And they said, you know, the Word of God is the sacred scriptures, and you're just a, you're a poor, sinful mm-hmm. person, and we can't have you touching the scriptures. So we're going to put that in a different language that you can't read, and we're going to put it up out of your reach, and you can't have access. Just a few elite people can get it. And if you can't read the Bible, there wasn't much worth reading. So we go into a period of 1,200 years of world illiteracy. People did not read. They could not read. They want to please God, which means they have to listen to what their civil and spiritual rulers tell them. It was in that period of time that the the church leader, the, the king and the church leader said, you know, if you look at the Bible, it was Jews who killed Jesus. So if you Christians want to do something good for God, go find a Jew and kill a Jew. That'll make Jesus really happy. They couldn't read. They didn't know what the Bible said, but they wanted to make God happy. So, I mean, we get an, every atrocity that occurred in the name of Christianity... You go back to that period of time. It's because
0: it was merged with government.
1: It's because the two institutions were together. So
0: you're saying that up until 371, I guess Constantine's one you're talking about. And when he institutionalized and made Christianity the official state religion is when the church That's right. really went into the dark ages and all of the atrocities that are often cited to show right. that we shouldn't have government. It was That's because when the two were together. They were together, and that was not the correct way. And
1: what's interesting is, at that time, over a 250-year period, beginning about 1300, God raises up about 30 different Catholic monks, these Catholic priests, and they say, wait a minute, let's go back to the Scriptures. The traditions are wrong, the government's wrong, the church, let's go back to the Scriptures that reformed the Catholic Church at birth the Protestant Church, but the emphasis was get back to the Scriptures. And when they got back to the scriptures, it is those Reformation leaders. It was those Catholic priests and monks who, who then became Protestants that started calling for separation church and state. It was the church who called for it because the church made it really clear that the church can't do what it's supposed to do unless the government leaves us alone. You guys quit dictating our doctrine. We're the one in charge of the doctrine. And the first time the phrase separation church and state was used was by a Reformation minister. And if you recall, Henry Eighth in England, started his own church mm-hmm. because he couldn't get the divorce he wanted. That's right. The Pope <laughs> wouldn't let him have. So, so he has his own church. He decrees the doctrine. He determines the doctrines. He punishes you. The, the Reformation followers, he was disemboweling them. Yeah. He was decapitating. I mean, he was just flat killing them. And that's where uh, Baxter, a minister, Reformation minister Baxter said, there's got to be a separation of church and state. We've got to get the government off the church's back. And so the whole call for separation church and state was to get the government back in the jurisdiction it's supposed to be in. And
0: you're, you're tracing that back to what, 16? That goes
1: to about 1580. 1580. About
0: 1580. So this far is long before the American... Long before
1: America. And so it was those Reformation guys who were doing separation church and state. So those Reformation guys are the ones who come to America. It was the pilgrims, and it was the Huguenots, and it was all, all the different groups that came And they have the Bible that teaches separation church and state. So they get over here and they're the first ones ever to separate the two institutions. They're the first ones to say we have church leadership, our first ones in, in 1,200 years. They, they said we have You're church leadership.
0: The 300s. Right. Uh-huh. you go back
1: to That's right. You go back to that time and they say we're going to have church leadership and we're going to have civil leadership. Now it's okay for Christians to be involved in both, but we're no longer going to let the government tell the church what its practices and doctrines are. It's just not going to happen. And we didn't believe in theocracies. That's why we elected our rulers. So separation of church and state was not to prevent a theocracy because we didn't have them. We elected our rulers. And you can't have a theocracy if you're choosing rulers. So we have that going on. And what happened was as Great Britain, we had conflicts with Great Britain because here in America, Reformation people, we don't want the the government running the church. Mm -hmm. But if you're from Great Britain, we have an official established Anglican church. So the conflict in America came to be like in Virginia where George Washington and Jefferson and Madison, those guys lived. You had a state established church in Virginia, the Anglican church. And the problem was you had Baptist ministers in Virginia, you had Presbyterian ministers and Quaker ministers, and you had all these different ministers, and they were being imprisoned and killed because they weren't part of the the Anglican church. Wow. And that's when the Founding Fathers stood up and said, no, the church does not have the authority to set the doctrine and tell what church you have to belong to. We've got to have a separation church and state. So it was against a state-established church, it was always against state-established, and the purpose was... We want separation church and state so that Christians can be free to practice their faith in public without being punished for it. So
0: when the phrase... So it's never taking, it's never taking uh, Christianity or out the out influence of, the of Christianity never. out of the public. Never. It was just to prevent the government... From, from running
1: the church. Yeah. And, and that's what it always meant. And so w- when you come to the first really usage of it that the courts like to use, Thomas Jefferson, the father of separation church and state, Thomas Jefferson is the guy who went into court on behalf of all these other Christian denominations to keep them from being persecuted. Thomas Jefferson particularly was a friend of the Baptist, and he had been in court for them. And so when he became president of the United States in 1801, he got letters of congratulation from Baptist groups all over America saying, Oh, God's raised you up for such a time as... And so, you know, he's getting all these... And, and one of the letters he got was from the Danbury Baptists in Danbury, Connecticut, and it's dated October the 7th, 1801. And they said, Man, we think God's raised you up. We're praying for you. We look for great things. By the way, we object to the fact that our free exercise of religion is guaranteed, constitutional guarantee. You know, Why would you object to have any constitutional guarantee to practice your faith? The Danbury Baptists said, We think that our right to practice our faith before God anywhere we want is a right he gave us, not government. They said, we think that it just being in the document might someday cause the government to think that it has the right to regulate our expressions.
0: Now, are we talking about the First Amendment?
1: Talking about the First Amendment and Uh the state constitution of Connecticut. okay. And they're they're saying the government has no right to tell us how, when, or where to practice our faith or what we do or how we do it. And so Jefferson writes back his famous letter. And it's a short letter. It's one page. It's 200 words, three paragraphs. Uh Jefferson says... You don't have to worry about the church stopping any public religious activity because there's a wall of separation between church and state. Now the point Jefferson made here: our First Amendment says our First Amendment does not say separation church and state. Right. It says Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Congress can't set up a national denomination, and Congress can't stop any public religious expression. Real simple stuff. One's called the Establishment Clause; the other's called the Free Exercise Clause. One is, government can't establish a religion, the other is, federal government can't stop religious expressions. Jefferson said, because of separation church and state, the government can't stop your religious expression. That is, he tied separation church and state to the Free Exercise Clause. Now, the proof that he knew what he was talking about is, here's an original Thomas Jefferson document. That is, by the President Thomas Jefferson.
0: Now that's not a copy. That's, that's not the not original. This original. Wow.
1: Now, if you can see here, look how he signs his presidential document. Can you read that, Andrew?
0: I no. You're talking about the, the printing or bitty, his the, the
1: printing. Can you read the printing? It says the sign- eighth
0: day of October in the year of our Lord 1804. Now, keep going.
1: It doesn't say in the year of our Lord.
0: In the year of our Lord Christ.
1: Thomas Jefferson signs his presidential documents saying, in the year of our Lord Christ. I thought he wanted separation church and state. No, separation church and state meant the government couldn't stop a religious acknowledgement. So he signs his documents in the year of our Lord Christ. Wow. Now, what do you think would happen if the president's day started signing documents like that? <laughs> you know, here, here's another one. This This... Let me pull out this paper. Now, also,
0: uh, he's often quoted as being the originator of that. But what he you're is. giving in this little history lesson is that it dates back to the 1600s, it, and it was used to get out from under government religion. And that's the way he religion. used it.
1: It was 300 years old in America when he used the phrase. So he, anybody he knew he who knew
0: history it. would have understood what he was saying. It's a it's a revisionist That's right, because history. on
1: four other occasions, he said the separation of church and state keeps the government from stopping activity. This is a treaty that Jefferson did with the Kaskassi Indians. As a president, he gets to do treaties with different Indian tribes and foreign nations. In this treaty, Jefferson put in federal funds to pay for missionaries to go evangelize the Indians. Now, we would say separation church and state. No, separation church and state kept the government from stopping those activities. Thomas Jefferson started church services in the U.S. Capitol in December the fourth, 1800. Turned out, the largest church in Washington D.C. by 1867 was
0: the one that met at the Capitol Building. But Jefferson started it. Doesn't sound like a lot of separation between church and state. The way it's interpreted. See
1: what what happened was in in 1947, the U.S. Supreme Court, a case called Everson versus Board of Education. The court Justice Hugo Black wrote the decision. He said, "You know, we really think Jefferson screwed it up." He attached Separation Church and State to the Free Exercise Clause. We think he really should have attached it to the Establishment Clause, and that's what we're going to do from now on. Now, when you do that, instead of saying the government has to protect religious expressions, you're now saying the government has to stop religious expressions. And so since 1947, separation church and state means you can't say a prayer to a football game. Oh, you, you can't have a prayer to open the legislature. Oh, my goodness, you can't have a nativity scene. Get those Ten Commandments down off the walls, of the classrooms. Now government stops every religious activity wow. because we have flipped separation church and state on its head. It's got a history that's 5,000 years old. It goes back into Israel. In the last 50 years, we've redefined 5,000 years of separation, church and state.
0: Have you ever argued this point? I think I on one of your tapes or CDs, mm-hmm. I, you argued this in front of the Supreme Court and showed them this history, mm-hmm. showed them Jefferson's own writings and stuff. And how do they respond?
1: You know, a, a case in which this happened was a case called Lee versus Wiseman, and in that case, the the issue was: Can a public school have a prayer at a graduation. It was an eighth grade graduation, and that particular year they asked Rabbi Leslie Gutterman to offer the prayer. And the school board went to Rabbi Gutterman and said, Rabbi, you need to understand that this is a secular setting, this is a secular group. We want you to pray a secular prayer. <laughs> now, what's a secular prayer? Well, yeah, there's well, no he, sense. Well, he get the idea. The idea is we want you to pray a non-offensive prayer. So, he came back with a pretty bland prayer, bless his heart, it was so bland that in district court, actually argued over whether or not he'd prayed. Couldn't even tell it was a prayer when you read it. And he said, Oh, well, it did have the word God, so it must have been a prayer in the summer. So it goes all the way to the Supreme Court. The question is can you have a prayer at a graduation of a public school? So what we did was we said, Well, the first public school law in America was 1647. Public schools were 120 years old when the Constitution was written, and we have a number of signers of the Constitution who prayed prayers at public school graduations in their day. These signers of the Constitution even gave sermons out of the Bible at public school graduations in their day. So clearly, so how
0: could they have meant that they exactly. don't that?
1: Clearly, they are not opposed to prayers at public school graduations. They find no hostility. to you know, So we took through all the history. Separation church and state meant the government couldn't stop it. Not that the government had So we went through all that. And we lost the case five to four. And the fifth deciding vote against us was the Supreme Court Justice. And that fifth deciding vote against us, uh, he just addressed the arguments. He said, well, you know, we've seen the Founding Fathers encourage school prayer. They condone school prayer. They even participated in school prayer. He said that proves one of two things about the Founding Fathers. It proves either, first of all, that they were a complete group of hypocrites, because they knew that it was wrong to pray in public and they went ahead and did it anyway he said or it just proves that they didn't understand the Constitution okay the guys right. who wrote it didn't uh, but that's that's the world view philosophy is this person still on the oh, Supreme yes. Court still on the Supreme Court
0: Well, I don't guess we're out against an individual but I tell you what that's just ignorance gone to seed
1: <laughs> that that is exalting Rebellion. yourself and your own opinion over law history fact He had a conclusion he wanted to reach. And any fact that would disagree with that conclusion, he has to have a way to dismiss it. And it's it's, it's don't argue with me. My mind's made up. Don't confuse me with the facts. And that's what it was. It was not a pursuit of truth. It was not a pursuit of law. It was a pursuit of an agenda. He had a specific decision he wanted reached.
0: And David, from the things that you're saying, it's very obvious that a lot of the mess that we find ourselves in, not only in this nation but all around the world, it's because people are either willingly ignorant mm-hmm. of things or they are just totally ignorant. They, But they are not... Interpreting in our country based on the historical uh, evidence of what our founding fathers wanted. I tell
1: you what, Andrew. You know the, the the sad part to me is across the world, this doctrine of separation church and state has been promulgated in a secular sense. If world knew world history, they wouldn't put up with this. Yeah. And on top of that, it's been, unfortunately, a lot of American missionaries who have taken this doctrine to other nations. that Oh, you know, as a Christian, you don't need to get involved in those areas, separation church and state. And so what we're doing is saying, you know, Jesus said you're supposed to be salt and light, but just don't go be salt and light outside the church. Stay inside stay the four inside walls the of the church. Shaker. Yeah, stay inside the shaker. What kind don't of good
0: salt exactly. do you stay in the you shaker. You know, it,
1: that's where trot trotted underfoot because it's not worth anything. But this is a doctrine that America, unfortunately, has propagated across the world. And in the last 50 years, we've we've really seen Christians get out of that arena, and they do not need to. I mean, consider what we have going on uh, recently at a graduation. A young lady, valedictorian of her class, is asked to give an address, and she used the word God in that address, and they yelled, Separation Church and State. Now, tell me how she's a church. She's an individual with the right of free speech, but because she said the word God, it's a violation of church and state. Church is an institution. State is an institution. She's an individual. She's not an institution.
0: You know, again, David, I hate to admit it, but I I would have been defenseless if somebody would have said that. I would have said, well, I don't believe that that's what separation of church and state means. But see, you're coming at it from a totally different perspective because you've got the benefit of knowledge of history.
1: Well, you know, the other thing is that 50% of Americans today think that the phrase separation of church and state is actually in the Constitution. It is not in the Constitution. It is not in any founding government document. There are 90 guys who did the the First Amendment. And by the way, the courts say that the First Amendment encompasses separation church and state. The 90 founding fathers who did the First Amendment, we have every bit of their debates. It went for months from June the 7th to September the 24th of 1789. Not one of the 90 founding fathers ever used the phrase separation church and state in framing that amendment. It does seem like if that had been their intent for the First Amendment, somebody would have said something. They didn't. So while we have the concept out there, people think it's part of the Constitution. It's, here's all the Constitution says on religion. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof.
0: Now, establishment of a religion is...
1: It's a state denomination. Yeah. They all defined it. We're not gonna let, let the government say we're not gonna let the government say we all gotta be Catholics or Anglicans or Baptists or Presbyterians or Methodists or anything else. Government can't establish. you're free to choose any you want and they're all welcome and they're all free to express themselves, but government will not choose one and establish it as the national denomination. But what's fun in that is the key is Congress shall make no law nor prohibit the free exercise thereof. All right. So we got Congress. So Tell me how that having a prayer at a football game is Congress. I mean, we we do this all—all these cases that we see going to court. The only prohibition is against Congress. It's not against a football team. I mean, we we had a case just here a couple weeks ago where a football coach in New Jersey has now been told that because of separation church and state, he can't bow his head when his team when his team prays. His kids get together and pray before the game. They said because who told him that the, the courts. The, the Court of Appeals, all the Federal Court of Appeals said you cannot bow your head when they pray. You go, wait a minute, why can't I? And, and by the way, we had the Ninth Circuit saying you can't say under God in the Pledge of Allegiance. And that's not Congress. That's a school kid saying under God in the Pledge of The only prohibition in the Constitution is on the action of Congress, not on the action of citizens or individuals. I mean, it's, it's, just, it's crazy. And it so, we have redefined church. We have redefined religion. We have redefined Congress. Congress now means an individual kid somewhere, you know, saying something in a math class or science class. We, we had a case uh, out of Tennessee, Brittany K. Settle versus Dixon County School Board, where it went all the way to the Supreme Court and they said, hmm, she can't write a paper about Jesus Christ in an English class, violate separation church and state. Wait a minute. That's not Congress doing anything. That is a girl writing a research. The good news now is that in America, we finally got on the offense. Proverbs 21, 22 says, A wise man attacks the city of the mighty, pulls down the stronghold. A wise men is offensive. And we now have about seven or eight national legal groups who for free take these cases. And one of them, Matt Staver, is a friend at Liberty Council. And I think he told me, I don't remember the exact stats, but they've had like 10,000 cases they have dealt with on religious expressions. And they've won like 98.7% of them because they've gone on the offense. So now when kids are getting in trouble, instead of just buckling under and saying, well, I can't write a paper on it, they're calling Liberty Council and say, my teacher said I can't write a paper. Is that true? No, that's not true. We have the teacher and the school
0: and court, and all of a sudden they find out, you can't stop that. And, And it's really good. That's encouraging to me because, I mean, I was aware of the ACLJ and ACLJ Jay Sekolo, great guy, and I, I was aware of him, but I wasn't aware that you mentioned that there was other groups. And the, I, the I certainly have heard Justice. that they're winning ninety eight percent of their oh it, it's unbelievable cases. Jay tremendous. Sekulow, I was talking
1: to Jay Sekulow not long ago, and Sekulow has done so many Supreme Court cases, and you know the ACLU is on the other side. They're yeah. very secular, very aggressive, and I was asking Jay I said. ACLU, how are you doing? He said, well, in the last 50 head-up cases against the ACLU, it's ACLU zero, us 50. Oh, praise so, God. I mean, well, we're, that's we're that's win- encouraging. We're winning cases like crazy. You don't hear about it on the news. Uh, what you hear are the goofy situations, and there's plenty of them. And occasionally we'll lose a case here or there. But we're winning more cases now than we've won in a long time. I'll, I'll point very specific. I'm going to get started on something here, and it's going to be fun um, because I'm going to meddle is, is what I'm going to get that's into. That's fine. No problem. Isaiah 126, you've got Isaiah who literally God has called him at a time when Manasseh is king, the most wicked king in Judah's history. And the nation is wicked. It's away from God. And God wants to get it back to himself. And he gives a promise to Isaiah that I will get the nation back to me. Now, it cost Isaiah his life. Manasseh kills Isaiah. But the promise that God makes, he says, I'll give you judges as you had at the beginning and lawyers as you had at the first. And then you'll be called a place of righteousness. Now, I found that interesting that God, in getting the nation back to Himself, said, I'm going to do it by giving you the right kind of judges, the right kind of attorneys. And that's what affects your righteousness. And I think about that and say, well, that's really true. Because the righteousness issues we face in most nations don't really come from legislatures. They come from judges. Uh, We've never had a legislature in America say, we want abortion on demand without restrictions. Only judges have said that. We've never had a legislature say kids can't pray at a football game. Only judges have said that. We've never had a legislature say you can't have the Ten Commandments. Only judges have said that, nativity scenes, whatever. So judges become very significant, which is why the Bible has so much to say about judges. In Psalms 2, verses 10 through 12, direct command to judges. Second Chronicles 19, 6 and 7, direct command to judges. Actually, Ezra seven twenty five talks to presidents because it says, appoint judges who know the laws of God. If you get the right kind of judges on the court, you'll see righteousness increase in the nation. And we've been through the process of really putting good justices on the court in the last few years. Well, that's um,
0: encouraging. Yeah, I haven't heard that. It,
1: as a result of the two justices who were put on the Supreme Court, a lot
0: of the cases we were losing we have now won. And I was aware of the Supreme Court, but it seems like that the appellate court and all of those... Um I don't know what you call them, but anyway, the lower courts, it seems like that we have so many activist judges we do. in there that this is really where a lot of our problems We've are got still. a bunch,
1: but 40% of the entire federal judiciary now has been appointed by the last president. And so 40%, we had some good ones there before, we had some really bad ones there, we had some good ones. But adding 40% of that as being basically good guys. And you think that they are good appointees. Well, there, there's some bad ones among there. You're not going to get 300 appointees and have them all perfect. Uh, but I'm going to say 80% of them are really strong.
0: That's You know, that's encouraging just, because, again, I keep my I, I keep my ear and i primarily on the Word, and I'm not real in tune with yeah. everything. But what I do here is just the bad stuff. Yeah. And so it's really encouraging now, I, that we're making some gains.
1: We, we actually, one of the, th- we've, we've got a daily radio program, and every Friday we have a, what we call Good News Friday. And Good News Friday right now is dominated with court cases where we're winning like crazy. God. I mean, we're winning court cases like crazy. It's just that the, you don't hear about them in the news. Now, we hear about the wacky ones that we lose, but we're still winning probably nine out of ten cases. By the way, this is kind of cool. Our original Chief Justice, U.S. Supreme Court, was also the president of the American Bible Society. Mm-hmm. Now, how cool is that to have your Supreme Court justice run in the Bible Society? But that's what we had. But he points out that the only way to assert your rights is to know your rights, and the only way to know your rights is to read the Constitution and see what your rights are. And as we do that and see what our rights are, we find that the stuff like separation of church and state is not in the Constitution, and that's what they use to beat us back. And so we said, no, 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 I have a right. I, have, I actually, as a Christian, have four rights in the First Amendment. I have the right of association. I have the right of free speech. Uh, I have the 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 right of religious worship. I've got four things in there that protect my religious expressions and we're convinced that we have to get permission to say God in public.
0: No way. I mean, even Jefferson, who's often quoted, you know, as being the the author of Separation in Church and State, which we've discussed, didn't mm-hmm. mean it the way it's been interpreted. But even he is cited as being non religious and sometimes anti religious, yeah. and yet he uh wasn't it Jefferson that uh uh as president Ordered a printing of the Bible and put into the schools.
1: Well, Jefferson was on the school board in Washington D.C. and Washington D.C. had the Bible as the reading text in Washington D.C. public schools. Jefferson's one of the guys who founded the Virginia Bible Society. Helped found the I Bible Society. I knew that he
0: had some, done something to mm-hmm. promote and publish the Bible, the Bible, and yet people cite him often as you know, non-religious.
1: One of the things that people cite today is they say, "Oh, the Jefferson Bible." He cut out everything that he disagreed oh, yeah. with, and. And I actually have an original copy of that. that's really cool what he did, but he explained what he did. And for us to say he cut out what he disagreed with, you have to call him a liar because he never said that. He said, I've grown up with the Indians in Virginia, I know them. And I know that if we can get the Indians to read the teachings of Jesus Christ and obey His teachings, that we can move them towards civilization and we won't have to fight them in any worse. He said, just a matter of policy, have them read the teachings of Jesus. So he went through the Bible. He cut out all the red letters of Jesus. He pasted that together nonstop in what he called a wee little book. He did that in 1804. He then gave it to a missionary. And he says, here, if you'll get this printed and you'll use this as you evangelize the Indians, this is just the teachings of Jesus. And today we say, oh, he cut out everything he disagreed with. No, no, no. He said he wanted the teachings of Jesus put out
0: there. Now, the first person that said that though had to have known what the truth was and just deliberately misrepresented. Mm-hmm. It. And now, after it's repeated so many times, mm-hmm. maybe some of us could claim ignorance or misinformation. But that had to be a deliberate. Attempt the original stuff
1: the was was deliberate. Uh, there, there's no question. You, you had a lot of secular people who rewrote it. I, I have a book, for example, that was done in 1926 on George Washington, and here's how 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 it goes: Is that 1926 book said, well. You know, George Washington may not have been all we thought he was. He may have really been involved in moral affairs and started this, he may have, he may have, he may have. Didn't have a single footnote in the book. The next year, the Navy Department came out with a book that trashed this book and said, here's the footnotes. And no, he did not, and he couldn't mm-hmm. even have done and, and so what happens in the 1930s, we had books that said, well, you know, maybe Washington was immoral, and they quote the 1926 book. In the 1940s, we have books quoting the 30 book, quoting the 26 book. In the 1950s, we have books quoting the 40s, quoting the 30s, and so now I can show you 100 books in America that says George Washington is immoral. None of them predate 1926, and they're all repeating what they've heard everybody else say. And that's where we are with Jefferson and his Jefferson Bible. You know, it, that's not what he said. That's not what he did. Now, I will agree, he had some difficulty with the divinity of Jesus. I'm not going to say he's a Christian, but I will say that that was not his point was to eliminate things he disagreed Mm -hmm. with because he, again, helped found the Bible Society to get the whole Bible out there to people.
0: And I have heard you say that even though some people will quote Thomas Paine or Jefferson or or somebody who did have some issues with Christianity, that that, there was like 95% Mm -hmm. of all of the founding fathers were, I mean, fanatical Christians, Mm -hmm. very committed.
1: I had a discussion with um, a national broadcast with the uh, editor of one of our national news magazines that everybody would recognize, and we were talking about the founding fathers, and and he said the founding fathers. You got Ben Franklin, you got John Adams, you got Thomas Jefferson, you got Thomas Paine, and he named five or six. I said, you're stopping there.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: There's 250 founding fathers. You've just chosen the five or six that are the least religious out of the group. How come you didn't name the two the other 244? You know, you, you, you pick one that's not religious, I'll name you ten that are religious, and let's see who runs out of people first.
0: You know, I'll, I'll name you more than you can name. And, and that's and the like, problem. like you say, even among Thomas Jefferson, who may not have been as religious that's as right. some, he still promoted the Bible. Benjamin Franklin is the one that when the Constitution, or was it the Constitution Constitutional Convention. Convention, they were just stalemated. And he mm-hmm. said, if a bird can't fall without God's recognition, a nation can't rise. And he ordained prayer. Yep.
1: Yeah. Franklin not only called for prayer, Franklin is the guy that starting in 1768 in Pennsylvania. He started founding a whole series of Christian schools across across the state of Pennsylvania to teach Christianity, particularly to black Americans because the blacks were not allowed to be educated under English law. And he said, well, what's this? And so he starts these Christian schools. He is the guy who came up with the first national seal design in which he used Moses and a Bible verse as as the base of the national seal. And the, the national motto he had was obedience to uh, re- rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God and it had Moses with his rod in the air Standing over the Red Sea, the enemies washing in over the uh, the sea, washing in over the enemies, and it had the pillar of fire and pillar of cloud, and that's that's Washington's great seal of the United States. I mean Franklin's great Franklin's. seal, uh, and, and you have Franklin who wrote the 1776 Pennsylvania Constitution that says you can't hold office in Pennsylvania unless you acknowledge the divine authority of the Old and New Testament. Wow. I mean, I can just go through all the stuff Franklin did. So this
0: brings us all back again to this separation of church and state. If you look at our founding fathers, it was non-existent. The way that it's interpreted It was today. never to be
1: secular. Separation, right. church, and state meant the government cannot stop a public religious activity. So I, I'm a big supporter of separation, church, and state. I think it's biblical. Right. I think it's historical. You, don't, you want the government you got to, to leave it you right. alone, that's right.
0: but keep, not intervene and keep you from expressing. Keep
1: the government from telling me that I can't practice my faith, but don't let the government secularize me. And that's what it's become. And that's what I object to. And instead of separation, church and state, it's better if you say secularization of church and state because yeah. they do secularize both of
0: them by doing that. And so this begs the question, how did this, we're 180 degrees mm-hmm. from what all of this actually meant. How in the world did this happen? And we've got less than five minutes left today, so we aren't going to be able to answer it. But. But how did all this start happening? It must have... Yeah. It, it, it's, everything happens slowly. I
1: mean, it's, it's little by little. A little leaven leavens a whole loaf. Nothing happens really quick. You have to come to accept certain things. So one of the things was back in the 1920s, we started changing the way we taught American law students. In the 1930s and 40s, we started changing the way we taught American history, and in the 1950s and 60s, we started changing the way that we did judicial policy. I mean, it's been—I I can look at it as a series of 15 and 20-year steps that's gone on, and because we don't remember what our history was, here's a great example. This right here, this is the very first Thanksgiving proclamation ever done by the federal government. George Washington did this sign right down there by George Washington the original Thanksgiving proclamation, let me just read you the first line. George Washington says, It is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey His will, to be grateful for His benefits, and humbly to implore His protection and favor. And he said that's the duty of nations. Doesn't sound like a secular public Mm -hmm. square to me. I mean, we used to know that phrase right there. It's the duty of nations to acknowledge God to obey His will, to be grateful for His benefits, and humbly to implore His protection and favor. That was a duty of nations. And so the nation called people to prayer. The nation assembled religious activities. The nation did it. It's just that we didn't establish a state denomination. We didn't say they all have to be Baptist activities or Catholic activities. We didn't do that. We said people get together and seek God. Uh, It's just... Well, doesn't the
0: Supreme Court and Congress, don't they open with prayer? I mean... This has been a tradition since the beginning, isn't it?
1: They do. They open with prayer. But see, here the new direction is. In Indiana opened its legislature with prayer for 189 years until a federal judge told Indiana, that said, you can't open with prayer anymore. He said, the reason is I listened to some of the words used in your prayer last year and some of those words used Jesus way too much. So you have to get Jesus out of the prayers or you can't pray anymore. So the federal judge is now telling us what words we can use when we pray. Now... Indiana brought in ministers that were Islamic, that were uh, Jewish, that were Christian, that were Catholic, Protestant, and they prayed according to their faith, which is their right to do so. But this judge says, I've listened to the words, and most of the prayers are okay, but these Jesus prayers have got to go. now." Fortunately, we got that decision overturned later, but it stood there for three years that the Indiana legislature couldn't open with prayer because people prayed the wrong words. We've got that going right now in a case in Virginia where they're saying the city council, the, the preachers opening city council prayer, some of them are using the word Jesus. They can't do that. Separation church and state. No, no, no. Separation church and state means you can't stop me from using the word Jesus. Mm-hmm. And, and what happens is if we back up and give them that ground, We've given up our right of free speech, first off. We've given up our constitutional right of religious expression, and we've compromised our faith. They are secularizing the church by telling us what we can and can't say.